You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning. Good morning. It's, <laughs> it's great to see all of you and it's great to be with you. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Midtown. Uh, and Jake, uh, he spoiled the surprise. We're talking about money this morning. So if, if it's your first time with us, I hope you enjoyed your last time at Midtown Church. Um, and I thought that uh, since we're going to talk about money, I might as well open up and lean into the discomfort and open up by talking just a little bit about politics. Um, so, so some of you will be old enough to remember the, uh, Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. And the campaign strategist, the chief strategist for Clinton's 92 campaign was James Carville, the raging Cajun. And in order to keep the campaign on message, Carville had some mantras that they used among the campaign staff. Uh, And one of those mantras became sort of the unofficial slogan of the whole campaign, and now it's a political cliche, and so if you know it, you can say it along with me. It's the economy, stupid. Some of y'all knew it, okay. It's the economy, stupid. Bill Clinton won 370 electoral votes. He won the popular vote by something like 5 million votes that year. It's the economy, stupid. Carville was putting his finger on the core motivation of the American voter. It's the economy. And he was right then, and he's right now, and he's probably right in perpetuity. Because the economy is the central motivator of the American voter, because prosperity is the central tenet of the American promise. So here's how our prosperity project is going in America. The United States is 5% of the world population, and Americans control 30% of the world's money. The average size of the American home has nearly tripled over the last 50 years and there are 300,000 items in the average American home. And yet, one out of every 10 Americans rent off-site storage, which is the fastest-growing segment of the commercial real estate industry over the last four decades. The United States has upwards of 50,000 storage facilities, more than five times the number of Starbucks. Currently, there's 7.3 square feet of self-storage space for every man, woman, and child in the nation. Thus, it is physically possible that every American could stand, man, woman, and child, all at the same time, under the total canopy of self-storage roofing and still be socially distanced. The average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with just 12 daily. 3.1% of the, world, or 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally. Our homes have more television sets than people, and those television sets are turned on, on average, for eight hours and 14 minutes a day. Americans donate 1.9% of their income to charitable causes, while six billion people worldwide live on less than 13,000 a year. And the prosperity threshold for the United States as of the last census is $12,760 a year. And Americans spend every year $1.2 trillion on non-essential goods. In other words, things we don't need. Okay, so what about Christians then? Because we're supposed to have a life that's like different than the culture around us. That's sort of the idea. Only 5% of church members give regularly. 
Christian households that make more than $75,000 are the least charitable. When it comes to giving away 10% of finances, which is kind of the general number that Christians sort of use when we think about how much money we should give to the church, when it comes to giving away 10% of finances, only 2.7 of all people, religious or non-religious, fall into that category of giving away at least 10% of their money. Nationwide, Christians today give about 2.5% of their income. For comparison, during the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. So Christians are less generous now than we were during the Great Depression. 37% of those who consider themselves evangelical, which is a word that used to mean something, 37% of those who consider themselves evangelicals do not give to churches at all. And millennials, because I am one, 84% of millennials give less than $50 to charity or churches every year. This is a sermon about wealth. And unless we enter into it with a little perspective, then we cannot have a morally serious conversation about it, let alone a spiritually helpful one. So if we want to acquire wisdom in the area of wealth, then we have to be willing to let down our defenses and open ourselves up to the possibility that our relationship to wealth is more American than Christ-like. The average American today sees more advertisements in one year than a person living 50 years ago saw in their entire lifetime. And we would be fools, we would be the biggest fools if we didn't stop to ask, what story is this culture telling me about wealth? What is the dream that is being sold to me? How has living here, growing up here, how has that shaped the imagination of my heart and the desires of my soul? And is my vision for my life, my ultimate vision when I lay my head down on the pillow at night and I stare at the ceiling and I dream. Is my vision for my life oriented towards serving God and my neighbor or is my vision for my life oriented toward selling myself out to the empty promise of self-sufficiency and upward mobility and personal advancement and luxurious comfort? It's a sermon about money, but it's really a sermon about our hearts. The Bible has a lot to say about the wealth of nations. It has a lot to say about economic righteousness. You can read literally any of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And Christians ought to be concerned about such things, and someone more qualified than me ought to preach on them. And many of you have concerns about these issues, and you should. You should. You have concerns about income inequality and wealth distribution, and you should. You have concerns about uh, cycles of poverty and housing inequality, and you should. You should be concerned about those things, but here's the rub. If our concern for those issues is not accompanied by self-examination and personal repentance, then all we're engaging in is self-justification. All we're engaging in is self-justification. So we need to make it personal this morning, and I want to do that by setting us up with two passages from Proverbs. One is uh, a passage that Jake elaborated on last week. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Very familiar passage. A lot of you have heard this before, might have it memorized, might have it on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a little thing in your house. Trust in the Lord with all your what? Heart. Heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. In ancient Jewish thought, the heart is the essence of a person. It's the control center. It encompasses our emotions, our volition, our will, our understanding, our decision-making. The heart is where everything goes down, which is why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, 
because everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. I remember when I was a child, I got this toy and a Happy Meal, and on the bag were these chaotic drawings. I mean, mostly scribbled lines in red ink. It was like, you're looking at it and you go, I have no idea what this is, but you could tell that behind all of this chaotic red scribble scrabble was a hidden image. And inside the bag were these glasses that had red lenses. And if you put them on and look at the bag, it would wash out all the red scribble scrabble and reveal the hidden image behind it. And I think these two verses are like our red lens glasses for understanding what Proverbs wants to teach us about money. The book of Proverbs is actually not the unified work of one author. It's a collection of seven different writings, probably by a handful of different authors. And on top of that, there are at least a hundred references to money, possessions, wealth management, work, and related topics in the whole collection of Proverbs. So what this means then is that it's very easy to sort of pick and choose and make Proverbs say what you want it to say. I mean, like the health and wealth prosperity preachers do this. Um, the poverty is morally superior folks on the other side do this. And so what you have to do is you have to actually collect all of it and synthesize it all together. Uh, so that's what I did. And when you collect and you categorize these more than 100 references to these topics in the book of Proverbs, these themes begin to emerge. One theme in the book of Proverbs is that prosperity is usually the product of hard work and good decision making. Now, here's the thing with Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of observations, not necessarily a book of promises. And so it's absolutely true that pro prosperity is usually perhaps the product of hard work and good decision making, but that's not necessarily a promise. Another theme is that poverty isn't pretty. It's really interesting to look at the book of Proverbs and see it's really not naive about what it's like to be in poverty. It stinks to be in poverty. And the book of Proverbs acknowledges that. Uh, another theme that emerges is that God opposes those who get rich by injustice. He opposes, though, those who use unrighteous means to accumulate wealth for themselves. But the most important teaching about money in the book of Proverbs, the, the, the majority of these references, when you sort of categorize them together, the big point of the book of Proverbs is that money isn't everything. Money is not everything. So think about it this way. If you had an employee or like a friend or a romantic partner or a relative or something who like consistently overpromised and underdelivered, do you have people like this in your life or in your work? They overpromise and they underdeliver. Um, I have ADHD, so I'm kind of wired to overpromise and underdeliver. So maybe you're like, yeah, Matt, you're that person in my life. <laughs> okay, Here, how long would you tolerate that behavior before you put some boundaries in place? Right? Like, how long, if you had an employee that continually overpromised and underdelivered, how long would it be before you had a conversation, before you entered into some evaluation and maybe fired them? Or if you had, like, a boyfriend that's consistently overpromising and underdelivering in your relationship, how long would it be before you dumped that guy? Here's the thing nothing in this life overpromises and underdelivers like wealth. Nothing else in the world overpromises and underdelivers like money and wealth. And yet we organize our lives around getting it and using it on ourselves. But the book of Proverbs teaches us that wealth is inferior to five things. The first thing wealth is inferior to is wisdom. This is Proverbs 8, 10 through 11. It says, Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge 
rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. In other words, if you don't have competency in regards to the complex realities of life, if you can't view life with spiritual object- objectivity and handle life with stability, then money's not going to help you. The second thing that wealth is inferior to in the book of Proverbs is righteousness. Proverbs 28.6, better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. Better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. Notice how what's happening is that Proverbs is elevating our inner life over the materiality of our outer life, okay? That's consistent. Look at the next one. The next one is, is that money is inferior to humility. This is Proverbs sixteen nineteen. Better to be lowly in spirit with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Better to be lowly in spirit with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Jesus embodied this beautifully. The next one is that, that money is inferior to the fear of the Lord, It's inferior to the fear of the Lord. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord, having a right picture of God and understanding the the distinctions between God and humanity and humanity's limitations in light of God's freedom, Proverbs says that that is much better than money. Proverbs 15, 16. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. And the last one is that money is inferior to good relationships. Money's inferior to good relationships. The very next verse, Proverbs 15, 17, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. You can say better a small serving of vegetables in a place where love is than a fattened calf in a place where hatred is. Money is inferior to good relationships. And then a last one. This is from Proverbs 30. This is kind of the final word in the book of Proverbs on money. It's also the only prayer in the entire book of Proverbs. And so when the author of Proverbs chapter 30, whose name was probably Ager, uh, when Ager wrote this, this was Ager's prayer. Two things I ask of you, Lord, and do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. That's very important because when you deal in falsehood and lies, you lose your ability to interact with reality. So keep falsehood and lies far from me. And the next request, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, here's what's really interesting about Proverbs 37 to 9. Proverbs teaches us that the rich person and the poor person are economic opposites, but without wisdom, they're spiritual twins. The rich person and the poor person are economic opposites, but without wisdom, they're spiritual twins. Why? Because both can be obsessed with wealth and all that wealth promises so much that they lose perspective and start to think, well, look what I built for myself. This is incredible. And they become proud of their riches. Or on the other side, they think, okay, If God won't provide for my needs in the way I want God to provide for them, then I will take matters into my own hands, and they compromise their character and sacrifice their soul on the altar of wealth building. Now, here's the critical issue. The critical issue is not the figure on the bank statement. 
So I'm not about to say, if you make this much, you're bad and you must be poor. I mean, like, I don't want to engage in that kind of hair-splitting nonsense. The, the critical issue is the heart. So think back to our Red Lens verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does it mean to trust the Lord with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding when it comes to my money? Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Okay, what does it mean to guard my heart against the false promises of wealth and prosperity? That's really the issue on the table this morning. So I just want to pause and I want to invite you to close your eyes and let's just have a moment. And I just want you to think and just ask this question of yourself and answer it honestly. You don't have to share it with anybody. What captivates the imagination of your heart? And when you dream about what you long for your life to become, what is involved with that vision? What is involved in your vision for your life? Let's connect this with what Jesus taught. Jesus' teaching on money is so plain. It's so plain. He had so much to say. You can open your eyes if you still haven't closed. Sorry, I didn't say that. His teaching on money was so plain. And he had so much to say about it. Jesus held up wealth, and he used the Aramaic word mammon. So sometimes you read in your Bibles, you'll see the word mammon. It's an Aramaic word that means wealth. But when Jesus uses mammon, uh, he sort of sets mammon, wealth, up as the only serious competitor to God. It's really the only serious competitor to God in the world. Think about what Jesus said. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters... A camel can't go through the eye of a needle. Or he says in Luke 14, unless you renounce all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. Why is Jesus so insistent that we maintain a posture of detachment from the materiality around us? Because he's after our heart. It's because he's after your heart. And so when I read in Proverbs, guard your heart above all else, my mind just, it races to the Sermon on the Mount and to verses that I memorized when I was a child. I mean, a small, small child. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal because, say it with me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think more of you knew that than were willing to say it along with me, perhaps. He goes on. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is diseased, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. 
You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus personifies wealth like it's a demon in the New Testament. Why? Because it's a force that will dominate and enslave us. It's a force that will dominate and enslave us. And to be human is to be subject to powers which rule over us and dominate us. That is what it means to be human. Because only God is truly free. And wealth is a power that will dominate you and enslave you and rule over you in your life. And how will it do that? It will do that by capturing our heart. It will do that by seducing your heart. It will do that by injecting empty promises into your heart for you to cling to. So wisdom in the area of wealth starts with guarding our hearts against all of wealth's deceptions. All of wealth's deceptions. Let's look at uh, real closely at one of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 12, 13 to 21. For context, Jesus is in the middle of teaching. Uh, Luke and Matthew both record a lot of the same material that's involved in the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew puts it all together and Luke kind of breaks it up in different places in the book. And so this is coming right in the middle of a place where Luke has inserted material uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is speaking and he's teaching about discipleship. And he's teaching about what it means to have a vibrant and a healthy spiritual life with God in God's world. And in the middle of his teaching, he's interrupted. Jesus is getting interrupted all the time in the New Testament, and he gets interrupted here. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's a couple things we need to note here. First of all, you need to know about inheritances in this culture. Uh, The law was very clear. You can go and you can read the book of Deuteronomy. You can read the book of Numbers. Uh, The law was very clear about inheritances. The rule was the older sibling got two-thirds and the younger sibling got a third. And the reason they did that is because at this time, it wasn't, it wasn't as easy to sort of like divide the land. It was like the land had to stay together in the family. So the older sibling would get two-thirds and the younger would get a third. So the law is very clear, but apparently in this instance, there's some sort of complicating factor. Maybe there's uh, multiple s- siblings. Maybe they're half-brothers. Um, but in either case, this person is signaling to Jesus, I haven't heard a word you said. <laughs> And uh, now, you might think it's weird. Why are they asking Jesus about the inheritance? What can Jesus do about this? Well, it was a matter of Jewish law, and the Jews at this time did not take their legal disputes into the Roman courts. They settled them in-house, and so the people who would settle those disputes were typically rabbis. Jesus was a rabbi, and so that's why this individual thinks that Jesus is an appropriate person to ask about this. But Jesus replied, "'Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you?' In other words, Jesus is like, this is outside the scope of what I'm trying to do. Jesus came to bring people to God, not to bring prosperity to people. And then he said to them, perhaps them is this individual and the brother, perhaps them is just the disciples, maybe it's the whole crowd. But then he said to them, watch out and be on your guard, guard, Proverbs 4.23, guard. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then here's just the bar of the whole passage. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist 
in an abundance of possessions. In other words, your goal is either to have or it's to live. Your goal is either to have or it's to live. And there are people spending billions of dollars to get you to believe they are the same thing. That to have is to live. And they are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. The pursuit and the accumulation of wealth and possessions is not the road to life. It's the road to spiritual death. And so Jesus tells them this parable. Verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Now notice two things. One, he's already rich. He's already rich, and the land yields an abundant harvest. Two, he's come upon this abundance in the harvest through sheer providence. It just it came up from the land. In other words, God has provided this abundant harvest. And the man thought to himself, verse 17, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. The barns are, all, are already full. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger barns, and there I will store my surplus grain. I'm going to pad my investment portfolio so much. Verse 19, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Drink, eat, be merry. I like the way the, the old translations sometimes translate this. I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of grain, etc., etc. This is the inner dialogue. This is the inner dialogue. This is, this is the content of the heart. This is cognitive behavioral kind of stuff. It's the inner dialogue of wealth. It's, I have received an abundance, and I should use it on myself. And you can see how he's talking himself into it. I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Enjoy it. Relax. But God said to him, verse 20, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared? for yourself. Notice all the uses of the first person indicative and all of the self-references in this little parable, in what this man said. He thought to himself, what shall I do? Okay, that's the right question. What do I do with all the abundance? He should ask that question. It's a good question. He comes up with the wrong answer. Here's what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have plenty. Now he's just talking to himself. Soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Just notice all of the I, 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 I. From moment one, it never, ever occurred to this individual this already rich individual who received this abundance, it never once occurred to this individual to utilize those resources to serve God or his neighbor. There was no consideration of that. From moment one, he was concerned about how he could enjoy it for himself. And so this is what God says to him. You fool. I mean, in a series called Foolproof, we'd have to look at a place where God actually in the Bible calls someone a fool. Why is this individual a fool? Because you can die at any second and your money has nothing to say about it. 
And then what good is your money to you? No good. Because you brought nothing into this world, and you can take nothing out of it. So each of us have to ask ourselves. Oh, Jesus concludes, sorry, verse 21. says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So here's the question. Am I rich toward God? Am I rich toward God? Or if you're not on board with the God thing or the Christianity thing or the Jesus thing, ask this question. When the direct deposit hits or the stimulus check or the tax refund or the surprise gift or the inheritance money or whatever it is, but when the money enters my possession, does any of it at all go to serve anyone besides me and mine? Does any of it at all go to serve anyone besides me? Because if the answer is no, then we can be pretty confident that what we've got spiritually is faith in the bank and money in our heart. That is what Jesus said. Where our treasure is, there our heart, our emotions, our will, our orientation, our vision and our goals for our life, our diligent effort, all of that will be directed toward the thing which we treasure most. So what are the lies that, uh, that wealth tells us? The deep, spiritual, the heart-level lies. One lie that wealth tells us is that God is not trustworthy. The world's an unpredictable place. You never know what could happen. You need to shore yourself up with some finances. Now, it's true there's wisdom in preparing for unexpected events, absolutely. But where's your ultimate hope for the security of your life? Because if, if your idea is that if I could make enough money and have enough stashed away, then I could be absolutely fine, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate drops to zero. So the lie is that, is that God is not trustworthy, that he's holding out on you. That if I were to actually try and implement the teachings of Jesus in my life as it concerns my wealth, I would miss out. I would miss out on pleasure. I would miss out on fun. I would miss out on joy. I would miss out on luxury. I would miss out on comfort. Whatever it is. Oh, if I actually started to try and be generous with my money, I would miss out. So in other words, God is holding out on me because he wants me to live in a way that's going to cost me joy. It's a lie. So the first lie is that God is not trustworthy. He's holding out on us. The second lie is that enough is not enough. Enough is not enough. That's a lie. The third lie, probably the most dangerous lie, I think the lie at the heart of wealth is this, is that you can be like God. The lie at the heart of wealth is you can be like God. Do you hear hissing? Do you hear scales rustling on the ground? Genesis 3, what did the serpent say to Eve? You will not surely die when you eat the fruit. God knows that when you eat the fruit, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. What's the lie? God is not trustworthy. He's keeping something from you. He's holding out on you. Enough is not enough, and you can be like him. It's, the ex it's no wonder that Jesus personifies wealth as a demon in the New Testament. It's the exact same 
recycled lie. You can't be like God. You are not free. Only God is free. You have no control over what you dream about when you go to sleep at night. You have little control over what you daydream about when you're awake. You have little control at the end of the day over whether you get sick. You have pretty much no control over what happens to the economy in this country. Uh, you have no control over the actions of nations and people the whole world over. We are not nearly as free as we think we are. Only God is free. And wealth cannot purchase for us freedom out from underneath the powers of the world which dominate us. Only Jesus offers that kind of freedom. So the danger of wealth, ultimately, is that it promises to give us what only God can provide. It promises to give us what only God can provide. Wealth cannot ultimately protect you. What wealth will do is make you feel materially secure while leaving you spiritually vulnerable. But wealth will not ultimately protect your soul. Wealth also will not make you more generous. I think, to be honest, some of the Christian teaching I hear about wealth kind of flirts with this idea. Well, you should work hard to get rich because then you could be more generous. Proverbs explicitly says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. You need to be wise enough to know when to, to cut it off. Wealth doesn't make anybody more generous. It makes people buy more stuff. If wealth made people more generous, then Christians would be more generous now than we were during the Great Depression, and we're not. Wealth does not make people more generous. It makes people buy more stuff. Remember the story that Jesus told. He was preaching in the synagogue in Jerusalem, and he was watching people put their offerings in the bucket, which we don't do that in church anymore. We let you give online and in private, like privacy, which is another American idea. But So Jesus is standing in church watching what people are putting in the I mean, can you imagine... Someone in this room, if we passed a bucket in here, if I was up here watching it get passed, and I'm watching what everybody's putting in, and what happens? A widow puts in two coins that together add up to about six minutes' wages, and Jesus says she gave more than the rich person who gave technically a lot more money. Why? Because it's about the heart. Because it's about... The heart and our giving is an expression of trust. Wealth does not make people more generous. It makes people buy more stuff. The last thing wealth can't do is redeem your life or expiate your guilt. I think about the, the college admissions scandal of all the, the very wealthy people and business people and celebrities, etc., who paid just incredible sums of, sums of money to send their kids through the side door into colleges. Why, would, like, why did they do that? Why did they do that? Is it because in the process of accumulating the kind of wealth that gave them the opportunity to do that, they neglected their kid, perhaps? Okay, if I've neglected my kid in order to advance in my career and make a ton of money, then what do I have? Well, then I better go back and use some of that money on my kid. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to expiate the guilt. I'm trying to cleanse my own guilt. I'm trying to justify myself. Wealth cannot do that. So brothers and sisters, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. They do not last. And you cannot serve 
both God and money. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.